0: leave your religion at the door. In the spring of 2019, the province of Quebec gained Uh, national attention by this new bill that confirms that our our province is of secular status, as well as to prohibit the wearing of religious symbols by civil service employees in positions of authority and by teachers in the public sector. If you follow politics and you ever wonder, can our federal governments get along on anything they did here? The Conservatives, the Liberals, the NDP, the Green Party all said, Quebec, you should not do this. And Quebec said, we don't care. What does this mean? It means that the NDP leader for the federal party, Jagmeet Singh, a Sikh, could not go to Quebec politics and still wear his turban. It means that Muslim women could not wear a hijab and teach anywhere. It could mean uh, in Quebec. It means that a Jewish man could not wear a yarmulke and drive the bus. It means that Christians, take off your cross because nobody wants to see that instrument of torture anyways. Now, to be fair, there was um, people that were grandfathered in. If you were already working in politics in Quebec, you were allowed to do this. But if you were new to politics, you were forced to decide. If I want to be a teacher, if I want to be a public servant, if I want to serve anywhere in the province of Quebec under under the provincial government, you cannot wear any religious symbol. Technically, this term was called Bill 21. For the media, it was called leave your religion at the door. We're currently in a series called Hard Questions. And these are some of the questions that we deal with regularly. And I want to take a moment to pause because while we deal with hard questions on a regular basis, we also recognize that a number of people uh, around us, thank you, um, are struggling with questions as well. And you heard David just a moment ago talk about alpha. Our sermon series on hard questions started with an alpha video Why did Jesus have to die? And my friends, as we talk about Alpha, as we talk about this big idea in our church of inescapable mission, we strongly encourage you to invite people to Alpha. Right from the beginning of September, we took this value that we have as a church, inescapable mission, and we talked about hospitality. We talked about inviting people into our homes and into our lives. We talked about how do you share the gospel? What do you say? What does friendship evangelism look like? Then we moved into the sermon series in Exodus on redemption, showing God's incredible power, welcome everybody who believes in Jesus to him. And now here we are in a series on apologetics. How do you defend the Christian faith? How do you answer these hard questions? And my friends, this isn't just an idea. This isn't just this time together where we think, oh, those sermons were nice, those songs were nice, and we're going to give a little bit of money. We are here to see the good news of Jesus multiplied. And I strongly encourage you who are you going to invite? Who do you know, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, who needs to hear the good news of Jesus? and maybe even engage in tough questions like the ones that we have today. So we looked at why did Jesus have to die? Last week, we said, what does the Bible um, have to say about sex? And today we're looking at this difficult question, are science and Christianity in conflict? Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, thank you for everybody in the room. Thank you for our church that enjoys thinking deeply about the scriptures and about the cultural challenges that we face. And God, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up, that you would be glorified. And in a sermon series that can be a little bit difficult and hard to understand, may myself and the other preachers speak in such a way that we can follow the line of argument and see what it is that you want to reveal to each of us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. If you're a note taker, I have more slides than I have ever had before. So for those of you watching online, my apologies in advance. We start with this, science and worldview. Every single one of us in this room has a worldview, whether we recognize it or not. Um, Where were we born, our country of origin, our faith if we have one, the hobbies, the sports, the school, the families, everything that happens in our lives helps create within us a worldview. Mark Clark um, summarizes uh, some of the work that was done by a, uh, a couple people talking about what this worldview looks like. And he says this, he has four questions, who am I? Where am I, what's wrong, and what is the remedy? Who am I? What is the nature? What is the purpose of being human? What does that mean and what does that look like? Where am I? What does it mean to be placed here in Canada, here on this earth, somewhere around North America? What's wrong with this world? What is the basic obstacle or problem that's keeping me from fulfillment? And what is the remedy? How do I overcome this problem? So to put it into perspective, this is what the average person might say, Uh, I am a human, I'm here on earth, and I'm trying to figure out how to feed myself, clothe myself, um, provide some transportation and shelter, and maybe have a little bit of fun along the way. But for Christians, it's a little bit different. We think to ourselves, we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of a great and holy king that are placed on this earth to go make disciples. What's wrong? Everybody has a sin issue that they have to deal with, and the remedy, the only way to get past that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Our worldview impacts how we live and how we interact with the world around us, and this is especially true when it comes to the realm of science whether we're Christians, whether we're atheists, whether we believe in a different religion or we're just spiritual altogether, our worldview impacts how we engage with the world around us. Harvard University biologist Richard Lewinton wrote an article, and this is a summary of it. The scientists that I work with uh, prefer naturalistic and atheistic explanations for everything they study and have a prior commitment to materialism. There are three big ideas in this one short summarizing sentence. Richard Lewinton and the scientists that he works with acknowledge we are atheists. We don't believe in God. That impacts how we're going to view things. We're also naturalists. Naturalist quite simply means that nothing exists beyond the natural world. Instead of supernatural or spiritual explanations, naturalism focuses on explanations that can only be defined through the laws of nature. Finally, you'll notice materialism which believe that nothing exists except matter and its movements and modifications. If you're thinking naturalism and materialism sound very similar, it's because they do. Naturalism is just a little bit broader in scope. Here's a quote from Dr. Lewinson's paper. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has faith. Think about the things that we have to believe in. When it comes to God, everybody has faith. You either believe God doesn't exist, You believe there is one God, that's what Christians believe, as well as Jews and Muslims. Or you believe that there are many gods, that's what Taoists or Hindus or Buddhists believe. All of us have a belief in something. We also believe how the world started. Do you believe that it was a big bang? Do you believe in an evolutionistic theory? Do you believe that there was uh, an an, an intellectual designer who created this beautiful thing in the person of God? We also have to agree uh, or believe on what is it that starts morality. How do we come to an idea of philosophy, of understanding of why one thing is wrong and one thing is not? And so as we think about science and worldview, I want to talk about two worldviews specifically because most of these conversations that we're going to have are going to be with people who really don't believe in in any major religion and our own religion. So when it comes to the atheistic worldview, there are three people who kind of are the people that everybody quotes, everybody reads, everybody talks about. There's Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And I've got a couple quotes from all, uh, from all three of them in this uh, message today. And now some of these quotes might be a little bit offensive. I actually think the first one is very clever and hilarious. This is what Richard Dawkins says. When one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. I shared this with one of, one of our staff members and the staff member looked at me and said, you know, he's making fun of Christianity, right? And I said, yeah, it's still a pretty clever quote. Christopher Hitchens says this, all attempts to reconcile faith with science and reason are consigned to failure and ridicule. Pastor Dave, you can stand up and talk. It's not going to work. Sam Harris agrees with him. The conflict between religion and science is unavoidable. The success of science often comes at the expense of religious dogma. The maintenance of religious dogma always comes at the expense of science. Well, how does this work? If, if you believe with what I said earlier, that everybody has faith, do these three intellectual academic men who happen to be atheists also agree that, yeah, we have faith of some sort? They don't. Sam Harris continues, Atheism is not a philosophy, nor even a view of the world. It is simply an admission of the obvious. But it doesn't matter how loud you pound the table and say, I am right. It doesn't make it so. I wish the Oilers were the best team in the NHL. They're not. It doesn't make it right just because I believe it to be. Because atheists don't believe in God, many of them would fall into the camp of naturalism, going back to Richard Dawkins, he explains what that means. An atheist, in the sense of philosophical naturalist, is somebody who believes there is nothing beyond the natural, physical world. There's no supernatural, creative intelligence lurking behind the observable universe no soul that outlasts the body, and no miracles, except in the sense of natural phenomena and that we don't understand yet. Now the study of naturalism um, provides us with many wonderful things. The study of naturalism and how nature works and how materials work together have given us vaccinations. They've given us the smartphones that we have in our pockets. They've given us cars that we get to drive around the city. We are grateful for scientists and what they've studied. But naturalism doesn't go beyond that which we see in the universe around us. How does naturalism teach us about morality? How does naturalism teach us about uh, philosophy? How does naturalism teach us what is right and what is wrong? How do we know how to make great decisions? The late apologist Ravi Zacharias had this great line. He said, some people love their neighbors, other people eat them. What do you do with that? Studying the world around us doesn't tell us what's right and what's wrong. Even in the conversation, takes an abrupt turn and suddenly they change the goalpost, the worldview changes from, well, I'm not a naturalist, I'm, a, I'm Darwinian. Similar problems still emerge. If a Darwinian atheist desires to remain intellectually consistent, they are forced to acknowledge that since we are the product of natural selection, our senses cannot be fully trusted. Jonathan Morrow writes, after all, according to Darwinian evolution, our senses have been formed to aid survival not necessarily to deliver true belief. C.S. Lewis, a brilliant man um, and English scholar said this, if the value of reasoning is in doubt, you cannot try to establish it by further reasoning. The question this morning, are science and Christianity in conflict? Here's my response. Certain worldviews, like naturalism and atheism, are in conflict with Christianity, but there is no conflict between science and Christianity. Now, there's a couple implications, and we're going to get to those in just a couple moments. Much like last week, my goal this morning is to strengthen your faith... Talk about some of the implications that we wrestle with regularly and then give you a couple things to say when we're engaging with our friends and family members. Throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see the scriptures regularly encourage people to study and to look and to observe the world around them. The psalmist writes, great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. In First Kings, I believe it's chapter 3, Solomon says to God, if you give me one thing, give me wisdom. So God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. And maybe we read First 1 um, Kings 4 and we think to ourselves, well, that means he's a philosopher. That means um, he's a moralist. That means he can uh, lead his nation really well. But the author continues, He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Jesus shows up in a verse that many of you are familiar with, even if you don't quite have it memorized or know where to find it, shows up and says to the Pharisees, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. After the Apostle Paul, was converted by Jesus on the way to Damascus, he stopped persecuting Christians and started defending Christianity. And he didn't do so with the people in the back alley who had no education. He dived into the greatest philosophers of the world. He started talking with the religious leaders of the world. He said, and we read this at least seven times in the book of Acts, he reasoned with them and he helped them to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and the reason that we can have faith in God. He says in his great theological treatise, the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God created the world, the very foundation for science to take place. He has given us laws that are consistent, repeated, and predictable. Science is our tool to study how nature works. And yes, the Greeks and um, the, the Oriental tradition has many wonderful scientists, but it's through the Enlightenment and the Europeans that we can recognize civilization continues to grow because of the Christian faith. Christian scientists arrived with their own worldview and began with a transcendent creator who brought the world into being, gave it an intelligent design, and meant for it to be explored. Lauren Isley summarizes this nicely by saying it is the Christian world which finally gave birth to a clear articulate fashion to the experimental method of science itself. Some of the most popular scientists in all of history are followers of Jesus. Isaac Newton invented calculus, so maybe you don't like him a whole lot. But he also came up with a theory of gravity and the three laws of motion. He believed that his scientific discoveries were the basis, were the foundation for the cosmological argument. That understanding that because the Earth had to start somewhere. Because the universe had to start somewhere, it takes an intelligent designer to make that happen. Blaise Pascal, brilliant man who is a philosopher, a mathematician, a scientist, an inventor, a theologian. He understood the foundation for game theory and probability theory. He invented the syringe and the hydraulic press, and because even scientists like to have fun, he invented the roulette wheel for a little gambling with his buddies. Louis Pasteur was a French chemist and microbiologist who developed the principles for vaccination and has saved millions of lives. He's responsible for the discovery of microbial fermentation and, of course, pasteurization as well. These are three of the scientists that are probably the most popular scientists that you've heard of, but there are dozens and dozens of Christian scientists as well. Many believe that universities themselves are a Christian invention. More than half of the Ivy League schools in the United States all have Christian foundations. Whether it's Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, all of them began as Christian institutions. Are Christianity and science in conflict? No. But if you believe everything that I just shared with you is true, I certainly do then we think, well, why is there that big challenge? What is it that's preventing Christians and the world around us from really seeing eye to eye? Well, think about this. How many times have you been at work, whether it's government, whether it's school, whether it's um, you're involved in the arts or the trades or professional areas, and it's kind of implied, if not directly stated, leave your religion at the door. Maybe you're hanging out in your social circles, whether that's with your friends, with your sports, with your hobbies, and people look at you and they directly ask you, hey, you're a Christian, right? You seem pretty bright. Why do you believe what you believe? Maybe it's just more stated than anything. How can Christians and intellectuals get together? Because obviously there's conflicting views that simply don't make sense. So what are those conflicting views? If we're being really honest, I think it's creation and I think it's the belief in miracles. So this is science and creation for those of you who are taking notes. I went to Catholic school and I remember sitting in my science class in high school and uh, the teacher at that time was saying, here's what we we need to understand about how creation began. And then he started to talk. I thought to myself, he needs to take some lessons from the drama teacher because he doesn't believe this at all. Now, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it went something like this. There are two views of how creation began. We have the Big Bang where particles became hot and dense until finally they exploded and started how we believe um, creation began. Or you can believe in the evolutionistic theory of how things all started from particles and eventually developed until who we are today. And as Catholics, we believe in you know an intelligent design. And you think, do you actually believe what you're saying or are you just saying that because you have to? But is it possible, maybe even charitable on our behalf, that when people imply science and Christianity are in conflict, it's because they say some people believe in evolution, which is right, and some people believe in God, which doesn't believe in evolution, so how on earth can they work together? When it comes to creation, the vast majority of Christians fall into one of two categories. You're either old earth or you're new earth. New earth, Christians are going to believe something like the world is 10 to 20,000 years old, um, and God has created it, and that's how old it's been. Or you're going to believe in the old earth, that the earth is hundreds of millions of years old, maybe even billions of years old, and that's basically all you can believe. It's like talking to my two boys and saying to them, they're uh, seven and nine, how much do you think our house costs? And one boy will say No, it's a little bit more than that. Another boy will say, $10 million. It's a little bit less than that. And so you have this wide variance. How do you believe either can possibly be true? For those of you who are relatively new to Ellerslie, a couple of years ago, we went through Revelation. And in this book of Revelation, we talked about how Jesus is coming back. But we didn't talk about the detailed theology surrounding that big idea. Jesus is coming back. The big questions, when and how, we didn't even touch. And so the same thing can be true when it comes to creation. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. When and how, we don't know. So think again about the book of Revelation. The um, term eschatology means the study of end times, the study of end things. And so you have a couple of different views. You have people believe that Jesus is going to show up pre this 1,000-year millennium. You have people who believe that Jesus is going to show up in the middle of the millennium. You have some people who believe Jesus is going to show up after the millennium. We don't know when, and we don't know how. Is Jesus literally going to show up on the clouds with angels blowing trumpets? Is Jesus going to take the Christians and the non-Christians and what is he going to do with that? How is the new Jerusalem coming down? We don't know the when and the how same thing is true about creation. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. When did he do it? Was it 10 to 20,000 years ago or hundreds of millions, maybe billions of years ago? We don't know. How did Jesus, how did God start the earth? Was it over six literal 24-hour time periods? Maybe. Was it over millions of years in which he just slowly put things together? Maybe. We don't know. And just uttering this next line might be offensive to some. Did God use evolution as part of his creation process? Ah, pastor just used the E word. It's going to be okay. Most of us have um, no problem saying that some Christians believe the earth is young. Some people believe the earth is old. Some people get really hot about it and think the other person is wrong. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Looking at Genesis 1, if you're in agreement between the theological, if you think there is an agreement between the theological giants of church history, you're mistaken. Origen, Augustine, and St. Thomas Aquinas all believed radically different things, You can look it up to find which one is which. If you've spent any time in Bible college or seminary over the last 30 years, you've probably read a book by Tremper Longman III. He writes about many things. He's a brilliant man. He loves Jesus deeply. He believes that God created the heavens and the earth. He believes the earth is 13.4 billion years old, and he believes in evolution. In his book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, Tremper Longman cites devout Christian biologists that say, if every major biologist believes evolution to be true, we must believe it as well. So I want you to hear my heart. Because some of you might be a little bit upset with me or frustrated with me right now. I'm not telling you what I believe. But I want you to understand this. There is one way to God. That's through Jesus Christ. There is multiple ways to Jesus. Does it through science? Is it through reason? Is it through relationships? Is it through miracles? Is it through God showing up to us in a dream? Jesus can use any way he wants to lead people to himself. Now you may or may not agree with an evolutionistic theory, but understand this, the way to Jesus And the breadth of understanding of creation, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, allows for an evolutionistic theory. And you might say, Dave, I totally disagree with you. Allow me to grab the Protestant Pope, Timothy Keller himself, to say the same thing. Since Christian believers occupy different positions on both the meaning of Genesis 1 and on the nature of evolution, those who are considering Christianity as a whole should not allow themselves to be distracted by this intramural debate. The skeptical inquirer does not need to accept any one of these positions in order to embrace the Christian faith. Do you believe God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them? That's the beginning. The reason we're going through this series is, yes, to strengthen our faith, but also to give us words and understanding to meet with people. And if there's scientists who think, if I hold to this evolutionistic viewpoint, I can't possibly believe in God, that is simply not true. Now that might rattle you a little bit, but I think the biggest thing, the real concern most people have is when we shift our attention to science and miracles, and maybe this is the biggest rub between Christianity and culture. You know, you seem like a pretty bright person. Do you actually believe all of the miracles in the Bible? Going back to Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists I mentioned earlier, and perhaps the most antagonistic towards Christianity, he says, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. Most world religions have some sort of miracle as part of them. Christianity doesn't just have a miracle as part of our religion. Our very religion, our very faith is predicated on miracles. Think about our series over the fall. And we looked at the book of Exodus and this grand story of redemption. And we talked about how God rescued the nation of Israel by bringing them up out of Egypt. And then he sent plague after plague on the Egyptians. David talked about the nine plagues and he walked through how some people say they weren't real. They were just uh, built upon each other. But then we read a little bit later on in the book of Exodus how God parted the Red Sea. And you think, well, man, some of this has to be real, doesn't it? And then we end the book of Exodus by hearing that God provided for the Israelites every single day for 40 years, bread from heaven um, that they called manna and meat in the afternoon. And you think there has to be miracles that take place. And then as soon as we wrap up the book of Exodus, we arrive at the season of Advent, where we believe that God sent his one and only son through a virgin. And then Jesus shows up, and his first miracle is to take water, and he turns it into wine, and he casts demons out of people, and he heals people, and he brings bread down from heaven, and he calms the storm, and he raises the dead before raising himself back to life. Our entire religion Is predicated that we believe in miracles. Unfortunately, it's not just those speaking against religion that are opposed to miracles. Sometimes Christians themselves try to explain it away. John Macquarie, a Scottish priest and theologian, doesn't believe in miracles, and he writes, science proceeds on the assumption that whatever events occur in the world can be accounted for in terms of other events. Miracle is irreconcilable with our modern understanding of both science and history. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga, who virtually brought Christianity into mainstream secular universities, responds by this. Macri perhaps means to suggest that the very practice of science requires that one reject the idea that God raised someone from the dead. Plantinga continues, rather cheeky. This argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his car keys only under the streetlight on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. Perhaps Macquarie, the Scottish um, theologian and priest, was just following the Scottish philosopher who is well-known by many, David Hume. David Hume says if nature behaves in a certain way, it is likely that it will always behave that way. Philosophers are very, very careful with their language. And Listen to that again. If nature behaves in a certain way, it is likely it will always behave that way. And since the laws of nature so infinitely improbably change, that would be considered impossible, except for the times that they do. The odds of winning the lottery are millions to one, yet every single week we have a brand new lottery winner. Just because miracles are exceptionally rare doesn't mean they don't happen. To believe otherwise would to enter into circular reasoning. Miracles never happen, therefore any witnesses of them is false. We know any witness is false because miracles Never happen. You cannot prove a negative. And if atheists want to be intellectually consistent with the belief about God and miracles, the best they can do is avoid comment. I respect Harvard professor Stephen Gould who says as much. Celebrated atheist, evolutionary biologist, paleontologist, and historian of science. Dude is bright. And in this quote, he sounds just exasperated. We cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion, to say it for my colleagues and for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its own legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence and nature. We neither affirm nor deny. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. Is there a conflict between science and miracles? I don't actually believe there is. I don't believe there's any conflict at all. According to dictionary.com, the definition of science is systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. For atheists, they come with a worldview of naturalism. Anything can be described by watching nature, except, and we looked at the quote earlier, when it can't. But the Christians come with a different worldview. We don't come with a naturalistic worldview. We come with a super naturalistic worldview. And so when something happens that is outside of the regular bounds of nature, we can say it's because there's a supernatural creator who's behind it all. I'm going to talk about that more in a moment. But taking our worldview of supernatural and using the definition of the science on screen, let's look at the most important miracle this world has ever seen. The resurrection of Jesus. The following is from Sean McDowell and Jonathan Morrow's book, Is God Just a Human Invention? Fact one, Jesus died cornelius tacitus considered the greatest roman historian josephus the greatest jewish scholar and historian and the jewish talmud which is a collection of jewish history and rabbinic sayings all agree that jesus died the liberal scholar john dominic croissant says jesus death by execution under pontius pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be jesus died fact two jesus tomb was empty The Pharisees knew that the followers of Jesus thought that he would raise from the dead in three days. So they went up to Pilate and they said, Pilate, we believe that something is happening here. We think that maybe um, they will attack the tomb and roll away the stone. Can you please put up a guard? And you can read about it in Matthew chapter 27. Pilate's response, take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make that tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Yet two days later, When the women showed up, the tomb was rolled away. Angels stood there and there was no body of Jesus. Now, typically, if you're inventing a story in the first century, you do not have women be the first people to arrive because women were not even allowed to to share in the court of law. And so what's happening here is the biblical authors are saying, this is exactly what took place. We know you might not believe it, but we are proving it by saying women saw it, Peter and John saw it, the tomb was rolled wide open, Jesus emerged. Finally, fact three, Jesus was seen after the resurrection. A powerful passage from 1 Corinthians 15 in which Paul talks about this um, at length says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Would all these people die for something they didn't believe in? The apostle Paul was persecuting Christians. He was going around and he was responsible for the death of thousands and the imprisonment of hundreds. And on the way to Damascus, where he was going to persecute more Christians, Jesus showed up to him on the road and he said, Paul, Paul, why do you kick against the goats? Why are you continuing to fight against me? the Apostle Paul arrives in the town that he was traveling to and then people are wowed by this man who has been radically transformed by Jesus. If science is the systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation, the miracle is a scientific fact. This miracle has been witnessed by hundreds of people. Eleven of the the disciples died for what they believed in. Most of them gruesome, murderous deaths. So where do we go from here? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and join me on the platform. I hope that I strengthened your faith. I hope that I dealt with a couple of the implications. What do we do with creation and what do we do with miracles? But what do we say to our friends? When we sit down across the coffee table from them and we invite them into our home and we're talking about them with them and saying, this is why we believe science and Christianity are not in conflict. What do we say? If you're note takers, you start with this. Determine their worldview. What do they believe? Are they atheists, do they believe that God doesn't exist at all? Are they agnostics? Do they believe in a different religion? Are they spiritual? Determine their worldview so that you can talk with them appropriately and meet them on the level that they find themselves. Second one is this. Everyone has faith. Everybody has faith. One of the questions that I genuinely ask others is, why do you think that it takes more faith to believe in God than it takes to not believe in God? Do you believe that there is no God, one God, or multiple gods? You have to have faith in something. When it comes to creation, do you believe that pa- particles just suddenly appeared and everything started working out to, get to the way it is today? Where else in the history of the world have we seen a big explosion take place like the Big Bang and something positive come out of that? Everyone has faith. Finally, and I think this is so incredibly valuable, miracles are a restoration of the natural order. Miracles are a restoration of the natural order. Think about the miracles that Jesus did. Cast out demons, healed the sick, calmed the storm, raised the dead. He cast out demons because humanity was not created to have a demonic influence in them, but the Holy Spirit. He is restoring the natural order. He calmed the storm. Romans chapter one, the earth cries out, is groaning for the returning of Jesus to come. And we're out in the boat in the middle of the sea, it's with Jesus' words, be still. And it listened. He healed the sick, why? Because we were not built originally and intended to be sick or injured. How do we know that? Because we look forward to the other side of creation, to the other side of glory. Where our bodies are whole and do not have sickness or injury, and He raises the dead, a restoration of the natural order. We were never meant to die, we were never meant to have sin. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And God is continually restoring the natural order. And that's the power of miracles. And as theists, that's what we have the privilege of believing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for hard questions. Thank you for hard conversations because it is through these hard questions and it's through these hard conversations that we actually grow deeper in our faith and understanding. And then that you are not afraid of any of these questions because you know how everything came together. You created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You sent your son of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead, buried, and raised from the dead. And you continue to work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. So let us treat people with love as the greatest apologetic. Let us sow mercy and humility and approach people with wisdom and with grace so that you would be glorified. Give us boldness and courage not only to have these conversations, but to invite our friends into our homes, into our places um, of worship, into our small groups so that they might see the good news of who you are and what you offer. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.